To me, sustainability at its core means preserving finite resources as well as perpetuating their viability, reincorporating the resources we do have back into our pool of assets so we can sustain ourselves for as long as possible. The guest you're about to hear from is a sustainability expert who offers a unique perspective on the topic through an economic and entrepreneurial lens. My guest is committed to the net positive business model, which encourages companies to shift their focus from exerting a neutral or net zero impact on the earth, but rather aim to improve the quality of the planet for future generations. He helped found and run the Environmental Protection Agency's Energy Star program, which enables businesses to minimize their carbon footprint. My name is Saul Salinas, um, and I'm a global executive vice president with uh, Kent Gemini. We are a, a global uh, consulting firm uh, with over 400,000 employees, and all of us care very much about sustainability and climate change. And I lead our sustainability work uh, in the Americas, and I'm part of a, a team of four uh, who lead our sustainability work globally. Mm-hmm. So you've done a lot of work in terms of change at the industry or like systemic level. Um, and I'm kind of just curious about where you see the future of sustainability in terms of um, how we can make the most impact. Do you believe that it is more on the company level, uh, the government level, large organizations, or is it more um, at an individual level? Yeah. Thank you for the question, Ariel. That's a uh, that's actually a very, very good question. Um, I've seen and I have been involved in climate change for 30 plus years, and I've seen um, uh, efforts to uh, enable governments to do more on climate change. I've seen efforts to engage consumers, to have them be part of the solution. And of course, I've been in, involved in efforts to, to, to have industry lead the charge. And, and having seen what I've seen, I've come to the conclusion, Ariel, that really, at the end of the day, it really is up to industry to make this happen. It's been very difficult for governments over the course of the last three decades, going back to the Rio Treaty, the first conference of the parties, and then Kyoto, and then Paris. It's been very difficult for governments to really uh, come to consensus and, and to hold each other accountable uh, to, to, uh, to the extent that we need to hold governments and countries accountable uh, to reduce, of course, our global our global emissions and greenhouse gases. Uh, not that they shouldn't continue to have a role clearly through carbon taxes and through regulation, et cetera. But I've come to the conclusion that it really is up to industry to make this happen. Um, and uh, you know, industry can mobilize uh, very quickly. They can invest very heavily. They can in many ways hold each other accountable um, the competitive nature, of course, of business is such that that uh, sustainability can serve as a differentiator for businesses, whether you're in commercial real estate, whether you're an electric utility, whether you're an oil and gas company, whether you're a consumer products firm, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we here at Capgemini and I personally have come to the conclusion that it really is up to business to make this happen. Now, as you well know, I was involved in launching a program called Energy Star. Uh, which is perhaps one of the most recognized environmental uh, uh, programs ever. Uh, it is the single most recognized environmental symbol on earth. And, and that, that taught me that, that, that uh, having business 
work with industry in tandem and in, in, in partnership is uh, is certainly a very powerful way to address the topic. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the work um, that you've done is sort of looking at uh, sustainability and fighting climate change through an economic lens. So I'm kind of just curious um, about some specific ways that you can kind of use the economy to leverage change. I guess not only on the level of like large companies, but how can we manipulate the economy um, to affect the actions of individuals as well? Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion, Ariel, for years around the linkages between uh, an organization's commitment to the environment, uh, the degree to which that commitment is a is a, is a representation of the of the quality of the management, and of course the uh, the degree to which good management uh, leads to shareholder value. At the at the broad macro level, and I was involved in some of that research very early on, and and helping to fund it, and and helping to socialize it and broadcast it. So it's 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 been very clear for for quite a long time that good environmental performance is a very strong proxy for good environmental quality, which in turn is a strong proxy for long-term shareholder value. Now, having said that, that hasn't necessarily translated into the day-to-day activities of the enterprise. And what I mean by that, Ariel, is that that, that sustainability still is not part of the fiber of how businesses, for the most part, um, do business. It is not, uh, you know, uh, factored in for the most part in the way that we invest in facilities, in the way that we invest in products, in the way that we invest in supply chain, in the way that we 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 um, invest in project. Now there are some exceptions. The real estate uh, business has, for quite some time, recognized the value of Energy Star buildings and U.S. Green buildings, LEED certified buildings. There's a direct linkage between energy performance and sustainability performance in buildings and market value, but that's that's not the case everywhere. So I think in answer to your question, what's missing is injecting into the day-to-day financial valuation tools of the enterprise an environmental element to it. You know, businesses invest based uh, on the use of financial tools, return on investment, internal rate of return, net present value. So, so the language of finance at the individual project level needs to include, not as an afterthought, but as an initial thought, the impacts on the environment. And so we need to develop new financial tools in business schools um, that uh, don't treat environmental issues as an externality, but as an internality. That, in my opinion, is a missing link, frankly, in in the way that we're addressing the topic of of sustainability and climate change. Mm How do you address companies that are hesitant to deal with the upfront costs of shifting to a more sustainable philosophy, like, for example, investing in renewable energy for large corporations, or even like my own school is hesitant to invest in like solar panels because the upfront costs are so high, but in the long term, these costs are far outweighed by like economic and environmental benefits of these things so how how do you address companies that are reluctant to invest in these things and like how might a high school students persuade their school to invest in these changes a couple of ways that i would answer that question number one is there's never been a better time in the americas to invest in renewables um obviously the biden administration has injected a, a, you know a lot of uh, funding into the marketplace that incentivizes 
um, you know, uh, the use uh, of renewable technologies, of uh, solar, wind, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's never been a time. So, so the return on investment on those kinds of investments right now, those kinds of projects is, uh, is unlike anything we've seen in a couple of generations, to be perfectly honest with you. In fact, investing in renewable energy is not only beneficial for large corporations, but communities as well. Transitioning to net zero carbon emissions has the potential to revitalize the global economy to an extent we've never seen before. According to the International Energy Agency, this transition will spur the net addition of 22.7 million jobs. And that's taking into account the loss of work in non-renewable industries. Renewable energy creates about three times more jobs than fossil fuels per dollar invested. Additionally, sustainable energy itself hinges on the natural resources already existing in a region. Last year, the United States imported 6.1 million barrels of crude oil per day. Since renewable energies take advantage of domestic natural resources, every dollar saved on reducing fossil fuel imports is a dollar that can be put towards local businesses rather than funding fossil fuel monoliths. Investing in renewable energy also benefits schools. According to the Biden-Harris Administration Action Plan for Building Better School Infrastructure, energy is the second largest expense for public schools, after salaries, totaling $8 billion a year. Yet, it's our nation's youth who will ultimately pay the price. Point number two is, is, you know, I'm really encouraged to sort of see, you know, you and your colleagues and, and your generation uh, embrace this this topic of sustainability and climate change and and take it on and you know join our generation fr frankly and the reason i say it is because you know uh, those organizations who don't take it on will i believe begin to to realize uh, the costs downsides of not doing that Committing to environmental sustainability is economically advantageous in and of itself, but if the financial gain is what companies and individuals are really after, the resulting environmental progress is rendered merely a pleasant side effect of increased revenue. In order to catalyze genuine, lasting change, people need to be fired up about protecting the earth itself. When climate change and overconsumption strips the earth of natural resources, there will be no economy. So how do we create more meaningful shifts in society? How do we make people care about climate change? Perhaps corporations and the adult generation that powers the world can start by examining the generation that currently has no stake in the financial game, youth. It is my optimistic impression that, um, that when you and your counterparts and your friends um, um, begin to make choices and have the ability to, to, to uh, decide what products to buy, what universities to go to, what companies to work for, that you will make choices based in large part on whether those you know, institutions are investing in solar, are actually you know, uh, uh, deploying circular economy models, are training students and their employees around climate change. And so this is a pay me, pay me now or pay me later scenario. It is, you know, I believe, you know, uh, a, a topic that 
will be a differentiator for companies. It's not unlike where we were with digital technologies. A lot of organizations refrained 10 years ago from adopting you know, uh, the latest digital technologies. They remained paper-based. They remained analog, you know? Well, look what happened to them, you know? So, so I, it is my firm belief that 10 years from now, if not earlier, you know, sustainability will be like digital. Those organizations that decide to stay behind will, um, will suffer the consequence economically. As Mr. Salinas points out, economic incentives are perhaps the most reliable stimulus for corporate change. Taxing carbon usage and incentivizing the purchase of electric vehicles are powerful strategies to manipulate people's choices. But is it sustainable to steer society towards inadvertent environmental progress? Though this is a bit oversimplified, isn't a drive for short-term financial reward what got us into this earth-destroying mess in the first place? I guess we keep kind of referencing this term sustainability, but... um, how do you personally define that term? Yeah, well, the, you know, it, this is a, another good question on your part. It, it's uh, I think we have to be very precise about what we mean because we do run the risk of it losing its meaning because it's so broad. You know, we we uh, you know we prioritize in the company that I work for at Capgemini. You know, the topics of sustainability, climate change being number one for us. And so if if your listeners are interested in taking on a sustainability priority, you know, I would urge them to think about climate change being perhaps the first one for obvious reasons because if we don't solve the climate change problem, then all the other problems really are for naught, frankly, and it's an urgent topic. Now there are multiple other issues and topics that fall within the broad basket of sustainability initiatives. You know, we talk about circular economy, this notion that rather than throw things away, there are ways to dis disaggregate, dismantle the hardware that, that we use, the devices that we use, the appliances, and inject them back into the into the into the supply chain, if you will, in order to obviate the need to mine new resources. Just talking about the transition towards renewables, you know, we completed a study here recently at Capgemini, and we came to the conclusion that something like 60% of the new infrastructure that we'll need in order to put um, renewable electrons into the grid um, will require new steel, aluminum, iron, you know, those kinds of things that, that, you know, this new smart grid will be built on. If we capture um, those those uh, uh, metals uh, through circular economy models, it will essentially uh, obviate the need to mine anew for resources, you know, that, that we would otherwise have to extract from the ground, in other words. By implementing circular economies, we are engaging in a sustainable strategy of repurposing used goods beyond a single use to reinvigorate the economy. This concept is well demonstrated through food waste minimization strategies, which I discussed in a previous podcast. Similarly, big tech companies are under pressure to extend the lifetime of equipment and allow consumers to repair expensive items. However, energy is by far the most valuable resource that we must work to sustain. In order to, like, I guess, fund this transition into a renewable society, from your perspective, is this more should this funding more come from like 
taxing large corporations? Is this somewhere that the individual can have responsibility for and can pay, be paid for with individual taxes? Or how, how do you propose that we can kind of fund these changes on a systemic level? I think it's a combination of both. Frankly, there's a there's a role for the stick and a role for the carrot. You know, the EU just this week enacted a new law that requires, uh, or that I'm sorry, that imposes taxes uh, to to those who import into the EU based on their greenhouse gas emissions. That's a powerful powerful stick. But at the end of the day, the solution has to be self-sustaining. And there are ways to invest in sustainable projects that that uh, provide perhaps a more assured a set of positive cash flows that you can that, that you can put forward and, and harvest for other projects that perhaps where, where perhaps the ROI isn't uh, necessarily as, as as attractive as it might otherwise otherwise be I mean you can squeeze a, a great deal of efficiency out of a building for example 30 40 50 percent still by enacting the most basic energy efficiency best practices and perhaps buying renewables those are savings that can be banked and harvest, harvested towards other sustainability initiatives that perhaps don't realize the kind of ROIs like for example some experimental circular economy models It may be strategic to force the hands of individuals as well as large corporations towards a commitment to sustainability, but let's be frank. In many cases, at least for corporations, this is a commitment more out of financial desperation than true concern for the environment. What does that say about our society, and in the most literal sense of the word, the sustainability of the drastic changes we are trying to achieve? Mr. Salinas emphasizes that the financial benefits reaped from sustainable business models can be recirculated into the economy and put towards even more sustainable investments. So it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of the stick and a little bit of the carrot. Mm -hmm. What about the rate of progress today? Like, you know, recently we just had um, COP27 and a lot of people were very disappointed by um, kind of the United States' hesitancy to um, make radical, you know, rapid changes and really we're just taking these very small incremental baby steps and do you think baby steps are enough or do we need, you know, do we need to be radical and rapid in, in terms of, you know, shifting to a more sustainable society? I don't think baby steps are any longer enough, Ariel. I do think we need to, to, to be bold. I think we need to be courageous. I think we need to be experimental. Um, I think you and I have had a conversation recently about, you know, my my own personal uh, commitment to uh, something called net positive, and my company's commitment to net positive, which is predicated on a book that was recently released by the ex CEO of a company called Unilever. Um, and another sort of good friend of mine, Andrew Winston, who's a thought leader in sustainability, this book argues that that we can't any longer afford the luxury of small steps. We have to be bold. And the premise behind net positive is not only do we have to be bold, um, um, and, and we have to be reparative, that being sustainable is no longer enough. We've done enough damage. And so the business models, the industry, 
needs to develop are ones that put more back than take out re reparative and regenerative business models and that to do so at scale so so no i don't think we have the luxury of time i think every single one of us has to look in the mirror and say what can i do i just came off a call here by the way with several of my colleagues here at cap gemini um and um and i urge them if you spend uh five percent of your waking time doing something on sustainability multiply that by 10. if you spend one percent multiply that by 10. and if you if you spend a hundred percent of your time then find 10 people so that you can multiply that by 10. we are at a point where as a species frankly we are out of time mm -hmm. how do you distinguish between the roles of uh like your generation or the adult generation and um the, my generation, youth, like obviously youth don't, can't make change on the governmental level to the same capacity, but like, you know, what is your, what is your generation's role in this and what is my generation's role in this? I think our generation's role at this point is to, um, is to teach you, you know, is to do everything we possibly can in the time that we have left. Hopefully, I have another 50 years left in me. But it is to it's to take everything we've learned and, in, and and pass it on to your generation, so that because you you you're gonna be you know you're gonna be here you know much longer than we are, um, so that you have the tools, so that you have the conviction, so that you have the passion, and the and the enthusiasm to act on them. This is not you know, a temporary issue. This is a transcendental issue for us. And, uh, and uh, you know, when this generation is no longer here, you will need to continue on the fight. And, uh, and it's not a fight that's going to get, um, you know, this is not a challenge that's going to get solved in 10, 20, 30, perhaps even 100 years. I think this is a challenge that we're going to have to address as a species for quite some time. So I think that, so, the, so I think the role for our generation is to impart as much of the, our knowledge over to you and our conviction as much uh, as much as we can over to you so that you can take the baton and, and run with it. Climate change throws my generation's entire future into jeopardy. So why isn't it at the forefront of our minds? Why aren't we protesting outside office buildings and parliaments with every chance we get? Perhaps young people feel disenchanted and fed up with the so-called climate movement that isn't moving. Today's corporate America recognizes the value in diversity. They want to hear young voices. But even when youth are given the chance to step up to the podium, it feels like we're shouting into the wind. It's not enough for the adults in charge to give kids a voice. They need to actively listen to us speak and make change. Some corporations and business people like Mr. Salinas and his company are listening. They give us a platform to speak and are genuinely interested in our ideas. Climate change is probably one of the only, if not the only, like truly universal threats to humanity. You know, it affects everyone regardless of race or religion. Or um, So I'm just wondering, like, um, in your work, how do you make sure that everyone is included in... Um, the sustainability movement and the fight for climate change and how do you um, make sure that no one is left behind and how do you you know incorporate diversity into your business model so as you probably have read recently ariel that a lot of un, 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 um, underserved populations 
um, in third world, fourth world countries are the ones that are most impacted by climate change. So at the macro level, it's very encouraging to see those who live in the developed world um, recognize that our crimes are are being, uh, you know, are, are, are affecting those that had nothing to do with with um, with uh, you know the actions that have led us to where we are. And, and so there is certainly a, a increasingly a global commitment among uh, countries and, and 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 across industries to invest in those communities in a way that um, that serves to make up for the fact that uh, they're they're paying the price for our frailties, if you will. So that's, that's so, 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 so it's encouraging that on a macro level, you know, uh, um, there, there are uh, increasingly also efforts to make sure that whatever solutions industry comes up with um, aren't just impacting um, the affluent and those that, are, that can pay for it. And, and so we at Capgemini have teams of individuals that are fully focused on, you know, narrowing the digital divide so that, for example, individuals who live in third world countries and don't have the connectivity through 5G that others or broadband that others might do get it. And we do provide that in many instances based on our own investment as a company or as an, an investment among uh, companies. So I think there's increasingly a, a recognition that, um, that uh, you know, th those who uh, should be aware of, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the solutions to climate change um, aren't just those that live uh, where, where you and I live, but but also those that live in, in you know uh, be, you know below the poverty line and, and so on. And there is increasingly cross industry uh, commitment to invest uh, in 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 um, you know in uh, in those communities. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like you mentioned, some of the um, most vulnerable communities are also um, like the developing countries or the ones that are more struggling economically. And one of the big goals of COP27 was um, pushing, you know, nations like the United States and some European nations that are um, more developed countries to financially sort of compensate the developing countries that are suffering as as a result of, like you said, our crimes. So I'm kind of wondering um, if you agree that, you know, the best way to help these countries is to offer financial compensation, or are there other ways um, that could potentially be um, more advantageous to these nations, or maybe not, maybe, maybe monetary compensation is the, the best route to go? Well, let me give you sort of a, a very crisp example, and this is an example that I use that sort of addresses the enormity of the problem as well as the complexity of the solution. The Amazon rainforest, as you well know, has for hundreds of thousands of years served as a carbon sink. Um, well, for the first time last year in 2022, it became a net emitter of, of, of greenhouse gases to the tune of 4 billion metric tons, which is like putting um, a billion vehicles back on the road, um, which is about four times the size of the U.S. fleet. That's, that's just as a result of the de deforestation over the Brazilian section of the Amazon rainforest. Now, that was in 2022, um, and so we'll see what happens in 20. 23. Um, and, you know, I, I, as I've also mentioned, Ariel, I was involved in the program called Energy Star. Over its 30-year history, it resulted 
in reductions of greenhouse gas gases to the tune of 4 billion metric tons. So the Amazon rainforest deforestation efforts over Brazil have fully erased the success of Energy Star. Why is that important? That's important because we can't simply uh, say, well, we have to stop the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest because there are communities in Brazil that make their livelihood from the farmland that results from the deforestation. So it is not a simple just let's just stop it because you then disenfranchise communities that that um, you know, that that, that um, you know make their living day to day from from the farming that takes place in those lands. So this is a case where the solution must be one that 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 embraces you know those communities as well. Um, and, and so is it is it um, fair to tax? products that are made from uh, the forests that are that, that are cut down in, in the Amazon yeah to some degree I guess it's it's fair but it's also unfair to those communities if that makes sense and there are efforts by the way to impose taxes on products that that, that, that um, you know that includes that, that includes um, you know paper products and, and wooden products and so on from from the Amazon rainforest well but then what do you do for those communities so I think so that, so you have to come at it from different sort of as a portfolio if you will there's been a great deal of discussion over the years around uh, a concept called um, you know land for debt swaps which is to uh, uh, perhaps um, reduce or uh, eliminate the debt that some emerging markets have certainly the Brazilians you know are, are, are you know under a great deal of, of, of you know foreign debt but maybe you wipe out that debt in return for a commitment that they wouldn't continue the deforestation efforts and that the the uh, the, the payments on those debts would otherwise then be steered towards those indigenous communities, those underserved populations in Brazil, uh, that would otherwise have to be uh, dependent on on uh, you know on the farming, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So there, there, so there, there are ways to sort of come at it, but they're very complex. Uh, they're they're difficult to implement, uh, but it has to be a portfolio of solutions. What advice do you have for people like me? Like personally, um, as a young person, sometimes I feel kind of stuck and helpless because, you know, I'm old enough to be conscious of what's going on, but I'm really too young to have, you know, much of an impact at the systemic level. I can't vote. I can't, you know, I, I can only do so much to influence, uh, you know, my local politicians. So what advice do you have for young people um, who want to fight climate change? Look, I would do what you're currently doing, Ariel. I would encourage your friends, um, you know, in your neighborhood, in your school, to be vocal, to be informed, um, to, to, you know, to broadcast your opinions, to speak to people like me, to speak to other, you know, people who, have, who perhaps have influence, and, and to have it be part of your day-to-day, -day, if you can. Accommodate your, your, your daily activities, um, uh, so that you can you can participate in these in helping solve this problem, um, and you know as much as you possibly can. It's unrealistic, of course, that you would spend your, your you know your waking hours uh, thinking and acting on climate change. You have other priorities, clearly. But but uh, but if you can devote an hour or two, as you do, you know, to the topic and do it in a way that that uh, that delivers you know, the message at scale. Uh, and the way that you're doing it through a podcast, 
through through uh, you know discussions in your neighborhood, you know through challenges that you might uh, design for your school or for your community that encourages people to recycle and and to be much more carbon conscious. You know uh, those kinds of things do make a difference. And when you get to the point where at university or a postgraduate, or certainly in your f final career choices, then I would certainly encourage you to, 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 to um, you know, uh, uh, embark on a career that, that enables you to move, move this topic and, and uh, you know, uh, institutions forward in the right direction so you can move the needle. So I think doing what you're doing is exactly right and, and uh, you know, um, uh, uh, encourage your friends to, 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 to join you, frankly. In order to prepare my generation to take on the gargantuan task of salvaging our planet, we need to fundamentally alter the way that young people perceive the world. We can't do this solely by prodding at the economy because youth aren't generally part of the workforce or large corporate decision makers. It must be instilled in the very fabric of our education, our home lives, and our social interests. I've been a big believer that that um, you know sustainability needs to be part and parcel of every topic, every class you you that, that that one teaches at university, and it has to be part and parcel of every conversation we have as business. It, it's what we're trying to do here at Cap Gemini. And so, look, if it were up to me, I would have a conversation with those who develop your curriculum so that every history class includes. Uh, you know, a thread on sustainability. Every, every, every class that you take in government, um, philosophy, psychology, economics, business, even mathematics, you should you should think about finance. You should it should be baked into. It should be part of the fiber of your curriculum. Now I know that's an ambitious undertaking, but now that would be radical, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a radical thing for a school? And Potomac is one of the best schools in the country, uh, perhaps one of the best private schools in the world. And wouldn't that be a radical move to have sustainability included in every single class, music even, religion class? It has to be because it's who we are. It's how we are as a planet. It's what we need to think about. It's it's it, you know it, I mean it's it's um it, that's where we are and it's in the, it's been in the background for too long. The consideration for 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 our planet has to be at the forefront of everything we do. It doesn't have to get in the way of everything we do. It has to be part and parcel of how we make our decisions. By the way, in the same way that COVID was during the pandemic, right? We did not make a move, Ariel, right? For two years without thinking about the implications of our actions. Every surface we touched, every playground we went to, every visit we went to, whether it was visiting our parents, our grandparents, our cousins, was a life and death decision. It was at the top of our mind, very realistically so Car uh, climate change is very much the same you know uh, uh, it's the same life life and death decision so doesn't it doesn't it merit that we have um, you know considerations of climate change and sustainability included in everything we do i would argue yes yeah i love that analogy of covid and how it, it was at the top of our minds and sustainability or like you know the threat of climate change should be equally pressing it's and it's equally devastating equally dangerous um, and it should be at the forefront of every action we take. 
Is there anything else you'd like to add? The final thing I would say is, you know, Ariel, I just I just want to congratulate you and commend you and, 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 and your parents and your family and your friends for everything you're doing. And, you know, the, what, what, what I typically sort of end my conversations with is if not you, then who? If not now, then when? If not where, if not where you are, then where exactly? So you're at the exact right time, you're at the exact right place, and you're focusing on the exact right issues. So I really want to commend you, and I'm just so proud of everything that I've heard about what you what what you do, and it's just been a real delight to speak with you. And and um, you know, I'm happy to come back at any time if you think uh, if you think that would be helpful. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking today. Speaking with me today. Um, it's been a really enlightening conversation, and you know, I have to say, it's inspiring to talk to people like you who, um, you know, are are driving us forward in in terms of saving our planet. Because I mean, really, as kind of superhero esque as that sounds, that is what it's all about. Is you know, literally trying to save our planet. So. You know, I, I really appreciate your time today and everything that you're doing to save the Earth. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Mr. Salinas is a change maker who not only values youth voices, but weaves our fears, our hopes, and our questions into the framework of his company's mission. His business model is not solely informed by economic interests, but by a genuine concern for the future of our planet and the generations to come. Through Capgemini's Conversations for Tomorrow series, Mr. Salinas' company takes diversity to its fullest potential, not just amplifying voices that are sometimes overlooked, but turning the hope behind the words into reality, setting the climate movement into motion.